This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On this week's edition, Primark Scream. The shops are open, the parks are full, the government is winding down its briefings, and all this despite a creeping rise in R rates and a lack of track and trace. Is Britain, and indeed the rest of the world, refusing to listen to the warning signs of another COVID spike? Plus, technology and automation were already going to upend the way we work, and then corona happened. Daniel Suskind, author of A World Without Work, is here to tell us about the future of the workplace. And in the light of the Black Lives Matter protests, a string of TV programmes and films have been removed from streaming services over the past week. Does editing the past of entertainment serve any real purpose and will this change how we make tv in the future all this and more in today's bunker Hello, welcome back to the big weekly edition of The Bunker. If you're backing us on Patreon and you enjoyed our exclusive live stream with Romaniacs last week, get your diaries out. The next one is on Thursday, 9th of July at 8pm. And there's an invitation in your inbox, as well as video and audio from the last one in case you missed it. The next edition will be a little bit different. So if you want to join in, search Patreon Bunker Podcast and sign up. You'll get live stream access to this, plus every podcast with no adverts in it and mugs and t-shirts too. Joining me not on, but next to today's podcast are Helen Lewis, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of the book Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in Eleven Fights. Hello, Helen. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Uh, you just written a, uh, a chunky Atlantic piece on Potemkin journalism, the likes of Nigel Farage running around saying the sky is falling, why won't the mainstream media report this? Is this now, is this the default tone of media now? Is this what we've got to get used to? Nutter seeds, poison theory, MSN has to follow it up. Yeah, I think it's something that mainstream organisations have to try and work out what they're, you know, have a proper strategy for approaching it. So the example that I wrote about is the fact that Nigel Farage has spent since April um, trying to kind of create a new meme, which is migrant boats and saying the word migrant boats a lot. And what he means is because there's not so many cross-channel ferries, then actually there have been more um, migrants trying to get from France to England. You kind of put that in perspective by saying, actually, overall, asylum applications have dropped because no one's coming in at airports basically. And, and and But the thing that he does that's the kind of the magic, the sprinkly magic on the top is that he says, well, the thing is, this is a story, quote, this is a story that isn't to be told. And you go, well, actually, I can see seven stories about it on the BBC. The Daily Mail's covered it. The Guardian's covered it. There's been a Home Office Select Committee um, report on it, uh, which they interviewed the former head of the Border Force. I mean, unless, you know, unless you want sort of, you know, the director general of the BBC to come round to your house and, and put a sort of massive light show on for you, then it's not, it's not being completely ignored but it speaks to that fact that in modern journalism it's a lot easier to get attention for oh there's a conspiracy to cover this up than there is actually to the the actual issue itself you must have been glad to see the statue defenders were out this week defending the statue of george Eliot in Nuneaton, like a massive bunch of woke flakes I really, really enjoyed that. Not least because, and I'm sure, I feel like I'm making content specifically by here now, but you know, the main thing about George Eliot was that she was incredibly randy. She was very ugly and incredibly randy. <laughs> uh, and therefore is in many ways my favourite Victorian writer. Um, and, and I think that's exactly the kind of spirit of Britain that we should even, you know, 
chicks who are objectively not all that easy on the eye deserve to be horny. And that's a message we can all get behind in 2020. Also back on the bunket, stand-up comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello, Ahir. How are things? Oh, you know, everything's completely normal and good and fine, like it's always been uh, for these last few months. Were you actually out and about in London during the Defend Winston Churchill by doing Nazi salutes and urinating on police memorials jamboree? Your Twitter indicated that you were out in town. Uh, yes, I, I sort of cycled to the river uh, early, earlier in the day and saw a lot of people sort of pre-drinking and getting loaded up uh, ahead of it uh, and had, yes, as I said on Twitter, enough of the sort of uh, penetrating looks and uh, gazes up and down uh, that too easily turn into something uh, more unpleasant after uh, more beers uh, to think it's probably wise not to go into the, the heat of it. It was quite interesting how all the people who attacked the Black Lives Matter demos for, for supposedly having a very irresponsible attitude to coronavirus had absolutely nothing to say about the COVID effect of, you know, dozens of overweight males crammed into Trafalgar Square. Funny that. Yeah, I mean, like, look, this is the thing that I, I was sort of internally weighing up and uh, other friends uh, were sort of texting me about and we were discussing, like, whether, you know, at the moment there is still... This, this pandemic that is not done, that has disproportionately uh, killed people in our communities. And so uh, it felt like it might not be, uh, on the one hand, it felt like it might not be right to go out and increase the possibility of transmission on that. And on the other, it was exactly the sort of thing that in normal times I would have wanted to be on. Uh, and I've, I've obviously been talking about the, um, the, the statue march this entire time. Uh, I, I would, uh, in normal times, have absolutely been been there. Just we in left and right, Andrew. We in left and right. Our special guest this week is an economics follow-up at Balliol College, Oxford, and the author of the book, A World Without Work. He's also worked in the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit and Policy Unit at 10 Downing Street during the coalition. It's Daniel Suskind. Hello, Daniel. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Pleasure to, to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Do, do you look back on the days of the coalition fondly now as you know, the last national moment of non-craziness? Well, I saw, I was thinking of how much of a, um, a crisis it felt back then because there wasn't really a precedent for the, the coalition and how I imagine all of us long for that sort of crisis now compared to the one we're, we're currently in. I mean, we're going to talk about this in detail later, but do you think the pandemic is getting in the way of the conversation we're going to need to have about how work is changing? Because the conversation about work is now recession, collapse of employment brought on by the pandemic. And in fact, the underlying thing is that work will inevitably change for for all the reasons we're going to go into a bit later in the podcast. Uh, I think these two issues are very closely related. Uh, The worries I had about a world without work because of the threat of automation and the worries I now have uh, about a world without work because of this virus. You know, we find ourselves in a world without work, not because robots have taken all the jobs, but because this virus has just completely decimated the demand that so many of those jobs relied upon. Uh, and I mean, what it's meant is that a lot of the challenges I wrote about in, in the book, A World Without Work, that I thought we'd face in, in the, the decades to come, we now face right now uh, because of this pandemic. And, uh, and a lot of the ideas I had for how we ought to respond, which you know, some people dismissed as being too radical or too extreme, are now completely mainstream in thinking about how we ought to respond to this pandemic. So I, for me, I, I see um, 
these two challenges, the challenge of automation and the challenge of dealing with this pandemic is, has been quite closely related. We're going to talk about that later in the podcast, but academia is taking something of a pounding as well. Cambridge has announced it's doing all its lectures online next year. Oxford are planning on introducing some face-to-face teaching from October. Do you think this is going to affect the the cost of education at student and undergraduate level and access to education? Because it's now reasonable for them, you know, for young people to ask, what exactly am I buying here? That's right. And one of the one of the things I've spent a lot of time thinking about in the context of the challenge of automation is what the implications are for education. And I, I've always said that, you know, it's not, we spend a lot of time thinking about how the challenge of technological change means we need to refresh what we teach people. Um, but there's also, I think, another uh, huge part to this, which is how we teach people. Uh, and, you know, one way to think about what all of us are currently engaged in is a sort of massive unplanned pilot scheme in the use of technology in lots of different workplaces. Um, And we're going to find out that some of these things don't work well at all, but we're also going to find out things that do work pretty well. Uh, And I imagine these are going to stay. And and I I think this is not only true for thinking about education, but it's true for thinking about the future of uh, healthcare, the future of law, the future of lots of different professions which find themselves now out of necessity, experimenting with with technologies, and, and and as your question is sort of hinting, it has all sorts of implications for access to that sort of expertise. Let's begin by focusing on everyone's favourite subject, coronavirus, and more specifically whether the world is sticking its head in the sand or not. In Britain, we've reopened non-essential shops despite England's alert level supposedly still being at four or extra hot at Nando's, the excellent chicken restaurant where you still can't eat. And government weekend briefings have been cancelled. In the US, cities are reopening almost heedless of the evidence. Helen, has the decision effectively been made that more deaths are the price of an economic recovery, do you think? And I think that's a kind of crude way of putting it and I try not to think about people in bad faith and also I just don't think you can think about the health service and the economy as two separate things right if we end up in a situation when the NHS gets overwhelmed and you know huge numbers of people are off work sick then we don't have an economy and ditto Mm -hmm. if the economy crashes you know that means that you're going to end up with poor people dying alone of neglect you know we'll have this big conversation about free school meals but without the money to pay for things and do things and that that also leads to death so the the problem is the waiting between the two of them and this is why it's ultimately not you know you can't hand it over to economists or epidemiologists it's ultimately a political decision about how you mix the two but that said you know there is definitely the the kind of the hawk tendency on the Tory backbenches that is gathering speed is we won't put up with any more of this you're like you come on you've had your lockdown and like surely this is enough we should shrink the, the guidance down to one meter we should be more aggressive about reopening stuff I mean we saw quite a lot of class shaming this week with uh people sort of pursing their lips at crowds outside Nike Town and Primark but you know Vista Village, middle-class outlet village par excellence, was also crammed shoulder to shoulder. Is it a case that, you know, this this is now beyond government control and the government is just going to have to follow the people because wherever we, I mean, we try not to mention the C word, Cummings, but after that, it's just not possible. 
to control people. I don't, I mean, I wouldn't blame that so much as human psychology. And it's not natural for people to spend, particularly people who live alone, to spend 12 weeks not seeing other humans. It's not, you know, I think people went through a huge amount of what I would think of as just grief in those first stages about things that they thought were going to happen, whether it's their wedding or getting to say goodbye to a dying relative, or in my case, my book. I don't know if I've mentioned that before. Um, you know, <laughs> got a book out. <laughs> yeah. The, the, you know, things that, that, like what you thought your life was going to be over the next 12 months. And actually, you know, indefinitely now, um, are not going to mm. happen. So I think you know, this was something that when the original modelling happened, people said there was such a thing as lockdown fatigue, and they, that's why they didn't want to lock down too early. And it will, we will never resolve this argument because you know people will say if you lock down a week early, you'd have prevented X number of deaths. I just think I would stop saying, I would hold that thought until we're three years into this and we know whether or not we've had to go through successive cycles of lockdown because at that point compliance becomes a really, really big issue. It does look an awful lot like the government is being sort of knocked from pillar to post uh, by a, a, a opinion out there. Literally, as we pressed record on this edition, uh, the government has has uh, caved to Marcus Rashford of all people uh, on the on the uh, the free meals thing. What, what what do you think that says about the uh, maybe the foundations or the uh, I don't know the the resoluteness of uh, of government at the moment? I think it says says that the vaunted political instincts, you know, the kind of hyena-like uh, acuity of down, this Downing Street that just knows what ordinary people want um, is just looks like absolute cobblers, right? So Marcus Rashford, hmm. Manchester United England player, I know this and have known this since uh, yesterday when I looked him up and not being a football <laughs> fan, you know, but has already proud a huge amount of his own money into into meals for, for kids um, and, and therefore has got absolute perfect political credibility to, uh, to talk about this. And also the week after huge Black Lives Matter protests for the government to get into an argument with a beloved black celebrity about whether or not children should go hungry does not to me suggest mm. a, a Downing Street that has got a great eye on, on public opinion. And, and, and having got into, they got into this bungle once before. And to me, what it more looks like is the fact that number 10 is just, you know, in the middle of a field full of, you know, it's like the this is fine dog, basically, I imagine, in number 10 at the moment, right? <laughs> that every wall and carpet is on fire and they're trying to work out what's the next thing that's going to that's going to come up like that. You know, are, are we still worried about care homes and deaths there? How about the, how's the track and trace app going? That's been a bit quiet for a while like you know it's they're just they're, they're firefighting on so many different fronts at once but this shows really bad political instincts and i think it's been obvious for at least 24 hours that they would u-turn on it and you know lo and behold much like the nhs surcharge for you know on on, on immigrants it was pretty obvious that this was indefensible in a time when we were all clapping the nhs to say but far foreign nhs workers you know don't have to pay extra money you know, and you just think, I, I, I don't buy the the twelve dimensional chess theory of number ten. You know, it's 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 just mm-hmm. not happening. I, I think that yeah, Marcus Rashford has done something genuinely amazing, and it's very dispiriting to know that you live in the sort of country where it requires a twenty two year old guy to go out and use his public platform in order to show the government that children starving is bad. Uh, but you know, given that we do live in a society where unfortunately he has had to rise to that uh i'm very grateful that he has well if you want evidence how the world's been turned upside down i now have nothing but total respect for a manchester united player who would have thought this is just like <laughs> antithetical to my entire life um i hear the video gamer jenny nicholson tweeted, tweeted over the weekend that we're gonna have to retire the expression avoid it like the plague because it turns out humans do not do that do you know have we uh have we reached a, a, a new base model for human behavior we're not going to listen to the guys upstairs 
Well, some, you know, some humans uh, don't avoid the plague because they want to storm state capitals in the United States with guns and demand haircuts. And uh, some human beings uh, will take their chances against something because they're living in a system that is so ridiculously unjust and corrupt that uh, the decision is seen as worth it. So, yes, we, uh, we, we may not avoid the plague, but we do not all avoid the plague for the same reasons. It's very interesting that um, around, sorry to harp on and Cummings again, but the kind of putting uh, the idea that people will use their judgment in the foreground. Two weeks later, you have people who have got a very serious thing to protest against, Black Lives, Black Lives Matter demonstrations sweeping the world. They clearly used their judgment and chose the option that taking that risk was worth it because this issue was massively important. Well, it's and very, apparently... use your judgment, no, not like that. Is, yes. Uh... The, the whole thing but isn't it kind of a Very wonderful so. insight into human nature which is that and, and actually something that i wrestle with all the time in journalism which is that only new bad things upset us and scare us so i've just been writing a long piece about domestic violence and it turns out you know two million people a year report being victims of domestic violence 1.3 million women six hundred seventy-five thousand men and you know that just is like a background hum school shootings in the u.s are now a background hum and the weird thing about coronavirus is that, you know, because it's things have got better from the start and that the death toll has come down, I, I wonder if it just becomes a background hum. Lots of background hums around. Mm. At some point, background hums deafen everything else. Daniel, as an economist, do you think the government has any any alternative but to do what it's doing right now, that to, to sort of, uh, you know, un- unlock the, the, the more generative aspects of the economy open up the shops open up um, you know what is possible in terms of opening up uh, hospitality simply because you know we are staring into such a a, a pit yeah I, I thought what helen said earlier was important which is that in a sense we're only at the beginning of this still um mm. that there is a long way to go um if, if hopefully we'll find a vaccine or an effective treatment in the next 12 to 18 months but if we don't you know the, the, this virus is going to be with us um with us for some time i i suppose that yeah uh, what what do i think about the lockdown in particular I, you know, stating the obvious the lockdown can't go on forever it's not only the economic costs but as others have hinted at it's the medical costs as well associated with people being in isolation and and uh and treatments and healthcare not happening. What worries me a little, though, is that you know the reason we are in a lockdown is to keep that reproduction number low. Uh, we need measures when we relax this lockdown to continue to be able to keep it low. And I'm not sure uh, that those mm. mechanisms are there. I mean, you, t- you talked about track and tracing. One of the things that I've been really concerned about since the start of this is about testing capability. Uh, not simply passively, not simply sort of passively testing those who appear to be symptomatic, but as we know, people can be asymptomatic for something like five days. No, act, mm. actively going out there and testing different um, groups of people, both those groups where we think R oh, might be high, but also groups, you know, parts of the country where we're not sure, just collecting as much data as possible so we can make a sort of informed a relaxation of lockdown as possible. And at the moment, the lockdown seems to be based primarily, it was imposed on a sort of economic criteria, essential and non-essential, and it appears to be relaxed on a sort of economic criteria as well. But I, I think there's also a sort of epidemiological aspect to this, that we ought to be you know, f- 
selectively locking down groups or relaxing lockdown of groups where R is either high or low. And I just, I worry we haven't got the testing capacity to be able to do that sort of thing. And we aren't collecting, it seems to me, enough data to be able to make those sorts of decisions intelligently. So for me, the testing capacity is is, is the, the thing that I worry about the most in, in relaxing lockdown. As, as someone in, in education, what, what do you say to the argument that we are effectively penalizing young people and in many cases possibly deforming their future prospects permanently uh in favor of protecting an older higher risk group of people even though those younger people are you know strongly considered to not be at at, at anywhere near as high a risk of contracting covid themselves or possibly even passing it on i mean what worries me the most about this education aspect of it again is the sort of inequality of it um, there's been numbers published over the last few days uh, comparing the number of hours of education that kids from private schools are getting relative to kids from state schools, the amount of homework done and so on. And and there's just the, you know, the inequality of the impact of this virus that we've seen reflected in so many different dimensions uh, is being reflected in the educational one as well. You know, I, I don't think we can think of young people as a homogenous group here. There are some people in this country who are continuing to get a terrific education, albeit at a distance. And there are many others who are not. Um, and, you know, I, I see this with my own students. You know, I've, been, I've been teaching this term and you know, it's, it's very different. But I think you know, many of the students are, 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 are pleased with what's going on, you know, dissatisfied in certain ways. But, you know, we, we are I think we're doing quite a good job. But I just I just don't know. Well, I think the data is clear that this isn't being replicated across the educational system. And, and that, that inequality, um, as in so many other aspects of this crisis, is what worries me. Helen, uh, you write for The Atlantic. You talk to your American colleagues a, a lot. What are they saying about the lifting of restrictions in the United States? Which seems to, I mean, obviously you've got state by state decisions and the states are all very, very different. Florida has seen a big spike in cases since it began easing lockdown. Is there a... Is it possible to say there's a kind of a, a consensus take from your colleagues about what's happening there? I think the thing that's notable when you look at the kind of hotspot map is that the south and um, you know the the west of the country are, are most heavily affected, and, and as you say, plus Florida as well. Although that has got an, an unusually high number of old people, right? People retire to Florida, so I'm not sure mm. how that will affect um, hospital admission stats. But the thing that, you know, all the way through, they've sort of said, I remember one of my colleagues saying to me, the, the, the one message that Donald Trump has internalized about his possibilities of winning the next election is that you can only do that when the economy is kind of going going well. Uh, and so he, that his, his focus above everything else is basically, you know, how can I make sure the stock market looks booming? How can I make sure that people are, are in work? And therefore he is Mr. Unlock the, the country and sort of tacitly approved of those slightly... Uh, alarming gentlemen with their submachine guns marching on state capitals. <laughs> but the other thing it made me think is the fact that it, um, Ben Smith, formerly of BuzzFeed, now media co- critic for the New York Times, wrote a brilliant piece about the fact that American media bosses, um, have, yeah, there's been this huge tumult in, in newsrooms, uh, you know, lots and a surprising number of people, you know, resignations or people being suspended, all this kind of stuff because of uh, fallout from Black Lives Matter and other social justice stuff. But at the same time, a lot of these people are not in, you know, they've left their, their posts, as it were, they're all in the Hamptons and like on the golf course and, and upstate New York. And I thought that is a really, and, and, and the same things happened here, right, where George Osborne gave an interview in which he revealed he'd been editing the London's premier newspaper from Somerset, his finger on the <laughs> metropolitan pulse as ever. But, you know, and I think that's a, 
that's a really difficult thing about the fact that, you know, the people making policy aren't living the policy, which is always a sign of, you know, I think the things can kind of go wrong. And my worry is about it, that all the people who are making the rules for us haven't really actually haven't been through lockdown once, you know, they've been going mm-hmm. to work under strange circumstances, but as usual, all, you know, so the people they've been talking to have got gardens and all that kind of stuff. So I'm really worried that people don't, you know, don't have a kind of full grasp of this, of actually what it has been like to live through this for the average person. I hear before we move on, it's looking dismally probable that a second wave is going to come sooner or later. Do you think we're psychologically prepared for it? Or do you think that, you know, people are likely to sort of go, well, it's like Y2K. It never really, never really got as bad as we thought it was going to be. And we were all back in Alton Towers pretty quickly. Will it be possible to get people to conform to a further lockdown if, if it's needed? Well, the interesting thing about Y2K is that a lot of terrible things did happen. And the only reason that even more bad things didn't happen is that people did a lot of preparatory work to yeah. stop it happening. Uh, so that's that's an interesting example to use uh, in conjunction with this. Um, I mean, uh, sure, I, I don't think that if, if we have to lock down again, it doesn't seem likely that we will take it as seriously as we did uh, in I would say the first weeks of this happening just because it was so out of the ordinary. But yeah, perhaps we will be a bit more psychologically prepared for it because it's something that's happened in our past. I, I, I remember um, yesterday listening to um, Ezra Klein uh, using the phrase, and I noted it down, he said, um, talked about it being hard to imagine yourself in the future, which is like the definition of a depressed person. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's basically that's basically been me most of my life. Uh, and so maybe maybe I'm really ahead of the curve in this, that if we do need to lock down once again and be uh, unable to imagine how we're going to get out of it, I will do what I've been doing uh, for many years now and take a pill and curl up and get real small. As you'll be able to tell from your cornflake-strewn home office desk, the COVID crisis has turned the world of work upside down. Today's headlines were grim, with an additional 600,000 people becoming unemployed in the UK. But as we head into the future, and hopefully a post-COVID world, what is the work sphere going to look like? Luckily, today's guest is exactly the right man to answer that question, Daniel Suskind, author of the book A World Without Work, which focuses on the impact of technology and automation on the workplace. But he's now going to have to incorporate post-pandemic world into the mix as well. Daniel, one of your key points is that that this idea that the robots are coming for your jobs is a kind of a, a an oversimplification that you know automation can and usually does augment work and increases individual workers' uh, productivity. But you think that that complementary effect is is coming to an end? Why is that? Yeah, I mean, so, so I mean, every, every day we hear stories of systems and machines taking on tasks we thought only human beings alone could ever do driving a car, making a medical diagnosis, designing beautiful buildings, composing, moving music. Um, and what does all of this mean for the vast majority of us for whom our job is our only source of income? Uh, yeah, I, I think this is one of the greatest questions of our time. And as, as you know, I, I wrote the book, because as you're suggesting, I don't think we're taking seriously enough the threat of a world where there's not enough work for people to do because of these remarkable technological changes that are taking place. I, what, what I do is I distinguish between two different types of technological unemployment, two different ways we might find ourselves in a world with less work because of technology. One is where there's plenty of jobs for people to do. It's just that for various reasons, people aren't able to take up that work. Uh, and I call this frictional technological unemployment. 
Um, but there's then exactly as you say, I think also a second type of technological unemployment where there's simply not enough work for people to do full stop. Uh, and I call that structural technological unemployment. And a big part of my work is trying to explain why it is that that's now possible, given that people have worried about it uh, ever since modern economic growth began 300 years ago uh, and turned out time and again to be wrong. So the first category is essentially it's the reason why you can't get British people to pick fruit in the fields of uh, yeah. in the field of East Anglia, East Anglia and vegetables. You know that that they are not skilled at it, and more more than that, they don't want to do it. But the second category is really that um, you know the, the the notion that there just isn't you know that, that we you know we, there's a shortage of positions, and you're actually seeing that right now aren't we? we we just in today's statistics it was there's been a massive growth of uh, numbers of unemployed and a collapse in the number of positions available right right and and that first that first type it's you know exactly as you say there's various reasons why people might not be able to do the work that's out there i mean one reason as you said is skills mismatch people might not have the right skills another is place mismatch which is that people just might not live in the same place that jobs have been created created. But there's another one which I, you sort of hinted at as well, which is this kind of identity mismatch, where people have a particular conception of themselves and they're willing to stay unemployed in order to protect that identity. Uh, and I think there's something quite interesting in, in thinking about unemployment among working age men in the United States displaced from manufacturing roles, why it is that they haven't taken up work elsewhere. But then, yes, there's, there's a structural phenomenon as well. And, and I think, you know, we've seen an element of that um, uh, at the moment where there just isn't there just isn't in particular corners of the economy enough demand uh, for the work of human beings. Now, that's not because of technology at the moment. That's because of this virus. But the consequences are are exactly the same, I think, whether we find ourselves in a world with less work because of automation or, or because of the virus. The challenges are, are very similar. Omen. As a, as a person who's wasted a lot of his life reading nonsense science fiction and comic books, I find yeah. it a very familiar world that you're describing. This is the world of of, uh, of the, the mass unemployed future where people have to fill their hours with, you know, learning pointless skills like, uh, you know, free climbing skyscrapers and learning how to head an egg into a bucket and things like that. I mean, are we essentially effectively looking at it as... Uh, you know, we, we spent 300 years wondering how we're going to develop value out of humans and yeah. get productivity out of humans. And the question we should be asking is, what are all these people going to do all day? Yeah, I, mean, I, I should say, I mean, I don't think that's the challenge for now. For now, the challenge is this mm. frictional technological unemployment, which is how do we prepare people for the work that has that, that's out there that needs to be done? And, and to do that, we need to be very clear about the reasons why it is that people can't do the work that's available. But, but if you do take seriously this argument that uh, structural technological unemployment is possible where there aren't enough jobs full stop then i think you do have to get into these these issues you know the the challenge is not simply an economic challenge which is how do we share our income in society when our traditional way of doing so paying people for the work that they do is is less effective than in the past but it's also a challenge of meaning and purpose you know how do you provide people with a sense of direction and fulfillment when uh, a, a traditional source of that is no longer available you know when technology not only hollows out the labor market but also a sense of meaning and purpose in people's lives and and what's been interesting about this pandemic is that i think we've seen both of these challenges right we've seen the the challenge of inequality how do we share our income in society when we can't rely upon the world of work to do it 
And what we've seen is we've seen the state step forward to take on that distributional role in a way that would have been unimaginable a few months ago. But we've also seen this challenge of meaning and purpose. I mean, it's been really interesting seeing how much has been written and discussed and debated about how we ought to best spend our time in this kind of enforced idleness. Uh, I think you know. I, I think many of us have a good sense of what gainful employment looks like. I don't think a lot of us have a good sense of what gainful unemployment looks like. And you know, if, if you again, if you take seriously this idea of structural technological unemployment, then the future is less and less worries about the future of work, and more and more worries about the future of some leisure and spare time uh, and how we spend our non-working lives. And and those are the sorts of challenges I try and get into in, in the book because I think they're they're unfamiliar and, and you know particularly for economists like myself who who tend to be the ones who who think about questions about technology and work. One thing that uh, is a huge feature of the book is um, is the, the growth of AI and the distinction between people trying to replicate a human-style artificial intelligence with the belief that that's going to be the thing that uh, is best able to solve problems with yeah. the fact that you, you kind of demonstrate that it's the non-human AIs, the ones that don't aspire to consciousness, that do the, the kind of cognitive jobs that can be performed efficiently but without consciousness. And these are the jobs that the middle classes do. These are all the middle class jobs like lawyers and accountants and you know podcast producers and all the rest of it. Is this, is this what's going to make it more of a hot-button issue, the fact that this sort of automation is now coming for the middle classes? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I wrote a book called The Future of the Professions, uh, a few years ago, arguing exactly this. I mean, w- one of the a, a, a really quite significant changes happened in the world of artificial intelligence, which was, you know, for a long time, people thought that the only way to build a system to outperform a human being was to try and copy the way that a human being might perform a particular task and, you know, try and capture human reasoning in a set of instructions for a machine to follow. So if you wanted to build a system, that could make a medical diagnosis, you had to sit down with a doctor, get her to explain to you how she made a, a medical diagnosis, and then you know, try and capture it in a set of instructions for a machine to follow. But you know, here was the problem, which was that if you sat down with a doctor and asked, how do you make a medical diagnosis? You know, she struggled to explain. She'd say things like, it requires intuition, gut reaction, instinct, creativity. And so it was thought, you know, that that sort of thing couldn't be automated. If a human being can't articulate how it is they perform a particular task, where on earth do we begin uh, in writing a set of instructions for a machine to follow? Now, of course, what's happened is that we have been able to automate the task of diagnosing lots of different types of illnesses. And we've not done it by copying the way that a human doctor does it, but by doing it in a fundamentally different way. A system at Stanford that can tell whether or not a freckle is cancerous as accurately as uh, as leading dermatologists. It's not trying to copy the judgment of a doctor. It's got a database of about 130,000 past cases, and it's running what's essentially a pattern recognition algorithm through them, hunting for similarities between them and the particular photo you've given it. It's performing it in an unhuman way based on you know, the, the analysis of more possible cases than any human doctor could hope to review in their lifetime. And so for so many tasks, it no longer matters that human beings can't explain themselves. And as a, as a result, many of the things that we find hardest to do with our heads, these systems and machines uh, find relatively straightforward to do. Conversely, many of the things we find easiest to do with our hands, uh, we find very hard to automate. Uh, it's why we don't have sort of robotic hairdressers or 
or gardeners or anything like that yet. And yet we have systems that can draft legal contracts, make diag- medical diagnoses, compose beautiful music and, and so on. And that's the revolution that's happened in AI. I call it a sort of pragmatist revolution, this just sort of increasing agnosticism about how it is that these systems and machines perform and increasing focus on how well they perform, uh, relying on lots of data, lots of uh, advances in processing power and in algorithm design. Um, and, and so a whole realm of activity we thought was out of reach of automation, uh, particularly done by many white collar workers is, is increasingly within reach. Finally, capping off the week in cultural neuroses, let's circle back to the purge of TV and movies triggered by the Black Lives Matters protests. Little Britain, The Mighty Boosh and The League of Gentlemen have been temporarily or permanently removed from various UK streaming services over the past week. Gone with the Wind was pulled from HBO Max in the USA in order to play some contextual additions around it. I hear every case is different with these shows. They represent different things. Some are more egregiously, obviously racist than others. Is there a hard and fast rule of what should go and what should stay? Is it even possible to say that? No, of course there's no uh, hard and fast rule. And also I would say that uh, it, it's not necessarily the case that you know the, a, a purge of TV and movies triggered by uh, the BLM protests i think it's more sort of people on the other side of things uh sort of the execs the channels and stuff doing things like it's less of a demand of the like i don't think that anyone was actively marching because of an episode of faulty towers it was more sort of people in response and i'm I'm gonna go right ahead and assume white people trying to uh cover their backs uh in ways that i think Every, everyone found uh, gone into the realm of the silly. And uh, that's sort of a problem. Like, it's not a debate that we want to be made about, you know, this joke was made in the 1970s or what have you. It's, it's about there are things now. And that's what people are marching mm. about. Yeah. And lots of BAME leaders pointed out that kind of sort of panic removing these things takes the spotlight away from what really matters which is actually getting more people from ethnic minorities on TV now. Uh, I agree with that, but then I've always agreed with that from a deeply uh, selfish perspective. (laughs) You're all right. You're already on telly. Let's (laughs) talk about people who haven't got their foot in the door yet. Yes, tell me. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, know, is it a case that, you know, it's, you know, by doing something that nobody asks them to, TV executives, and you're almost certainly right, white people in offices have successfully accidentally moved the debate away from actual racism in television and in society to talking about Vicky Pollard and Papa Lazarus. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's, I think that a lot of it is an intentional attempt to frame the debate around something else so that we can avoid having the conversations that uh, people who are demonstrating uh, actually want to be having, uh, right? Like, uh, I mean, you saw this whole thing occur with the statue of Winston Churchill. Uh, and mm. despite the fact that, like, all right, I, I am apparently a beastly person with a beastly religion uh, in, in his eyes, certainly don't have an issue with the statue being up. And I think that if you were to talk to me or my parents or most people in that situation, it's like, no, the problem is not the fact that there is a statue of the lad who bossed the Nazis uh, next to Parliament. Uh, the issue is what's happening now. 
Uh, and mm. this, it, it provides a very sort of clever distraction and smokescreen, I think. My one request is that the Helen. Churchill statue should be, like, the plaque underneath it should be replaced with the lad who bossed the Nazis. <laughs> I think that's, I, was, I actually scribbled that on the back of my hand when he said it. I think that's, I think we can all go it still freaks my nut out to this day. still freaks <laughs> my nut out to this day. Them slags. Yeah. Um, I hope people will get that Danny Dyer reference because that would be sad if our cultural references that are so part of our British heritage get lost in this moment. <laughs> well, yes, we Photoshop our history far too often, Helen, and we should, we should remember great moments in the in the British island story like that I think Helen do you think that you know this sort of retrospective editing does it ever work out well for broadcasters does anybody ever turn around and go, yes it was a great thing you did there you just get the instant kind of virtue signaling pushback don't you from people who are going to say virtue signaling at anything yeah I, th- I thought that and I thought it was good that I, I did feel people made the proper point about faulty towers that this was something that you know John Cleese had signed off on and it wasn't about some light anti-German rhetoric it was about use of you know racial slurs that in something that is markets itself as a sort of PG comedy that might be shown at 5 p.m you're, you that's not you know you're not expecting that I mean I think there's two things going on here right which is Sorry, one... just to, just to say quick quickly there Helen uh, yeah what... There was the thing that when it was re-aired at uh, 7.30 p.m. a pre-watershed in 2013, they did edit those sections out. Right. And 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 this is what I think, because I have this discussion more in relationship to the theatre, which I write about more, and about, you know, can you have a black person playing Hamlet? It turns out, yeah, absolutely, everyone's totally fine with that. That every new airing is a new endorsement of it, right? We all know that broadcasters put out um repeats because it's quite cheap but what they're doing every time is endorsing that that view and saying this is still a thing that is worth watching now and therefore to my mind it is completely legitimate to say this is the version of this thing that we think is worth putting out now and worth broadcasting now that's separate from the idea that there should somewhere be a repository of the original versions of things that that you know if you want to study conceptions of race in the american south in the early 20th century it's very useful to watch gone with the wind right and so mm. I think you could do something, for example, where you offer people on a streaming show, the default is an edited version, but you can have the option to watch the original broadcast yourself. There's no reason why you couldn't offer both of those things. But also you do something like what, you know, YouTube did with controversial creators was say, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an imposition on free speech to ban you entirely. What will prevent doing is putting adverts against you or perhaps preventing you from being recommended by the algorithm. And that's something I think you could do as well with something like Gone with the Wind. So you don't kind of go, oh, the best of American cinema. Um, but you do have it there on your streaming service because it is an important historical and cultural document. Like you don't have to treat these things in a kind of, do we put everything from before 1998 in a huge bin fire um, or, or yeah. not? Why end? That's the decision you've got to make. It was interesting to see what they, they, it seems they're going to do with Gone with the Wind is not edit it because it's almost impossible to edit in such a way that would remove the, you know, it's not like, oh, let's make it 10% less racist. The thing runs, it's a strand that runs through the film. <laughs> but what they are doing is, is placing, almost placing brackets around it with intros and with kind of content advisory at the beginning. So you, you're going to watch the thing as made. Right, which, but in context of all well, this is this is what they were saying at the time, and what here's here's why we think it's problematic. But again, which is something that kind of theatre shows have been doing for a really long time, right? By revi- you know revisiting classic texts and casting them in unusual ways, or rewriting bits of them, or you know, like you are you are allowed to be kind of playful with with existing cultural documents they don't you know they don't have a, a right to be aired and this which is a kind of the same point as the statue debate just because someone thought someone was very important in 1890 doesn't mean we all have to agree with that forever 
that you are allowed to reappraise mm. your current conception of who and what you're celebrating. And that's, that's history is not a fixed point. I mean, I feel very strongly about this having written a history. History is a process and it is continually renewing itself. It's about what we choose to remember and how we choose to remember it. It's not an objective scientific process at all. It's a nightmare from which I'm trying to awaken. Uh, <laughs> <True>. <laughs> old James Joyce. Uh, but um, also, uh, Helen, just just quickly, uh, I have a question about the theatre because I know fuck all about it. Um, but is there also a thing of like, because, because that was always written uh, with the idea in mind that this would be performed and obviously like even when Shakespeare was alive, that stuff would have been performed again and again and again in different times by different people then that might end up being a bit different to something like telly or film because that's always going to be locked in place. Right. And like we don't refer to, we don't refer to new version, new productions of plays as remakes in a way that we would with films. So that makes we absolutely sense. should though. It would make them sound much more exciting. <laughs> like it's a total reboot yeah. of Romeo and Juliet. In which case, I, I want a gritty reboot of Hamlet, <laughs> even more gritty. No, yeah. no, I mean that would be like the Christopher Nolan, like Hamlet on perched on a building top, surveying the city. Um, but you're yeah. right. But that well, is how we should think about. <laughs> but that is exactly how we should think about TV and film. Not as uh, you know, it, there is one aspect of them which you know, if they're in the BFI, they should be kept there as a historical document. But every time you choose to air something or include it in a list of best films, you are making an editorial judgment. And and actually, what was really nice about watching that David Copperfield, the Amanda Yanucci one with Dev Patel in the lead, was that it used essentially the technique of theatre of just going, let's kind of go nuts with the casting and just essentially cast race blind. And that's something that is now completely commonplace in the theatre and now being applied to period dramas. And it made me feel a lot better because I feel one of the problems with Britain's love of period dramas is it's like, let's make some lovely telly about white people. And here is this whole <laughs> genre when which you can only have white people because that's yeah. that's history. That's just how, that's how history worked. And and I and <laughs> I really worry about. Never ask what paid for the house. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. We he made his fortune in. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, and, and that's and, and I think that's you know. And actually, it's a really weirdly ahistorical thing, right? So even if you read something like Mansfield Park, there are references in that to the fact the family's fortune comes from slavery. And then you get to this now, our version of what we would like the past to have been like. For example, you know, you know, Colston was a controversial figure in his time. There were lots of people who didn't want that statue put up at, at the time. And now we've, we've, we've kind of said we're sort of dishonouring our ancestors as if they never, ever had political debates at, at all about any of this stuff. And that's the end of the podcast. Um, thanks to everyone for coming in. Thank you to our special guest, Daniel Suskind. Um, what, uh, what avenue of employment would you uh, ar- advise today's 18-year-old to be going for in a future automated world? Uh, I mean, very crudely, there's two strategies. Either you try and compete with these systems and machines, you try and do the sorts of things they cannot do, or you try and become someone who can build these systems and machines who's capable of designing and using them what you shouldn't do is learn to do the sorts of routine activities that these systems and machines are already very good at doing and and uh, and the topic for a a bigger conversation is my, my worry that you look at education systems around the world that's precisely what they're currently training young people to do so basically what you're saying is they should train as blade runners to retire replicants who have gone off the, the uh, off the job that, essentially that's what you're saying that's, i'm, I'm going to take that as a that's one interpretation 
<laughs> Thanks also to Ahir Shah and Helen Lewis from the panel. Thank you, and we'll see you again soon. Listeners, we'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget, you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just say our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. If you back us, you'll get a shout-out on the show. And here's another lot now. Hello, and thanks from me for your support to Heather Ringrose, Loreline, Nicholas Day, Nigel Beanland, and Sam Madrill Matthews. And hello from me to Michael Coates, Nicole Curtis, Sally Kemble Smith, Neil Jones, Sanjay Niar, and Helen Fisher. And huge thanks from me to Gaynor Clarkson, Adrian Skilling, Thomas Rocklings, Brian Power, Gavin Thurwall, and Henry McSorley. We'll see you all soon. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Ahir Shah and Helen Lewis. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. Theme tune by Gunny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>